The purpose of my lecture tonight is really to talk about whether or not we are doing enough to hear the children who are the subject of these cases, where we can do better and where we're doing the right thing. So that's the purpose of tonight's lecture. Um, so what am I going to explore? Well, I've given you an outline there. Uh, because the subject is so broad, I've decided to focus on four main aspects, which are um, effectively what can we do to make sure that we make the public or give the public the best tools for understanding what's happening in their name? What does that mean in terms of transparency of the workings of the courtroom? What do we mean about a situation where the judge wants to meet the child and the child wants to meet to the judge? What difference is that as between the child giving evidence? And then are we properly reflecting the child's rights in these courtrooms across, as I say, the whole of United Kingdom? So where shall we start? I think we start on the fact that we need to recognise that the family courts have for decades lagged behind that which is going on in the criminal justice system, whereby they have had to deal with a process which includes children by way of giving evidence in very, very difficult circumstances for more years than the family court has contemplated that being an appropriate process. And the, fam the criminal courts have had to do that because if, for example, an allegation of sexual abuse, the sole source of the issue for which the defendant is facing a trial comes from the evidence of a child, then the emphasis in the, in the criminal courts about the rights, the, the rights to fair trial, the rights to have proper argument, and the, the right to have the ability to challenge the evidence that could otherwise lead to a conviction, means that the criminal courts have had to develop ways in which children as young as four have to be encouraged to, to give their evidence in the criminal court system. And the family courts have, for very many years, shied away from that because I think we are essentially a paternalistic jurisdiction where the last thing we want to do when our rationale for coming into the work is to protect a child is to catapult a child into that environment which is the most tense, the most stressful, the most challenging and the most distressing. And there can't be a more distressing or stressful situation than giving evidence. If you think about how any of you would feel having to go into a courtroom and to try to give an account of something that had happened to you, your stress levels would be go up. So how can we possibly expect a child with their different levels of ability to cope with that scenario? But things have to change because if we have been shown the way in which another jurisdiction, children can be helped to give their account, then do we not have to think about how we can assist that in the family court? And the reason I ask that question is, what do you do in a situation whereby, if, for example, to a murder of a mother, the only witness is a child, do you potentially not have that evidence before the court which may otherwise assist a jury or indeed a judge to decide what's properly happened? What happens in a situation where a child is being abused and whereas the adults may constrain themselves from that type of behaviour in front of a non-participating adult but they think it can go ahead in the presence of a child, do you somehow think that it's not worth the exercise of seeing if that child can give evidence, if it might make the difference to a judge deciding about whether something has happened. So I don't think we can automatically assume that children don't have a role to play in that very tense of the situations that I'm describing. And if we think they can play a role there, then what about the right of a child to understand what's happening in a court case which is deciding where they live or who they see, whether they should go into foster care or whether they should return to a parent. So... That explains why um, our president um, was saying as long ago as 2015 and why 
the current president of the Supreme Court, was contemplating what we expect of children. And this phrase is up there because it's an understanding about what we understand from a child when we ask the question of them. So, as per here, um, Baroness Hale saying, as any parent who's ever asked a child what he wants for tea knows, there's a huge difference between taking account of a child's views and doing what they want. And that gets to the nub of issue about wishes and feelings versus what's in their best interest. But that, does that mean to say you don't listen to what they want in the first place, even though you might take a broader view of it? And what she went on to say was there's a growing understanding of the importance of listening to children involved in children's cases. It's the child more than anyone else who will have to deal with what the court decides. Those who do listen to children understand that they often have a point of view which is quite distinct from that of the person looking after them. And I wanted that quote in right at the beginning because I think the tendency sometimes is for adults to assume they do know best and to assume that if a child says something, it comes not from their own perspective, but effectively they've been a sponge and soaking up the perspectives of others. And I think that's doing children a disservice. So if that was said in 2006, why are we now in a system where children aren't at the forefront of our decisions and where their views are given through the filter of those professionals who speak to them or through the filter, for example, of a videoed interview? Well, Mr Justice Mumby had the same concerns as I did. I'm not alone in this field, and he certainly trumpeted the concerns well before many of us had even thought of articulating and as he said in 2015, repeating something he said in 2014, the family justice system really needs to start catching up with what's going on in the criminal justice system. To use the words, as he says here, lagging woefully, indeed shamefully behind that which is going on within a companion jurisdiction, highlights the strength of the task and the depth of the task that the family justice system needed to front up to to take a proper look at what they were doing in their courtrooms and decide if effectively it was fit for purpose. What that led to, because Mr Justice, uh, sorry, the President, uh, Mr James Mumby, is a doer, not simply a sayer, is he set up a working group. Now, often we know that when working groups are set up, that's the equivalent of sending it out to the grass and nothing being done. But that's not the type of people that our President sets down to do the tasks for the work that's been done. He's a hard taskmaster. He tries to pick the right people for the job and he demands results. The results of the working group he set up came through this report. In March 2015, it was chaired by um, Mr Justice Hayden and Mr Justice Russell. And what they were doing was looking at the workings of the family justice system initially with just two um, elements to consider. The first was why and in what circumstances, if at all, should children meet judges? And secondly, why and in what circumstances should children give evidence? But over the course of the work they did, which include talking to young people themselves who'd gone through the care system, they rapidly realised that that was two specific examples of a much more wider issue within the family justice system, which is do we properly listen to children or do we just say we do? Do we properly have children at the heart of our minds and at the centre of our thinking in the family justice system? Or do we say what we think needs to happen? And there may well be a significant overlap in what we say should happen with what the child wants to happen. But if there is a contrast between the two, where are we balancing up those competing views? And how do we explain to children that an adult, unbeknownst to them, have come to a solution which is not the one that they want to have? Why is this relevant? 
Well, it's because we need to listen and learn from those children that have gone through the system. So what you see here is a slide that is talking to you about some of the input from one of the contributors to this working group. And I need to get closer so I can focus. But that's the Family Justice Young People's Board. And that comprises of children who've gone through the system 14 up until 22. Articulate as they are, there's a number of them that sit on a council called the Family Justice Board. So they get to talk to the decision makers. If you can imagine the quality of our young people to think that not only do they have it the wherewithal to join this group and then to have the confidence to go and meet and talk with adults and to talk about their experiences and to hold their own with them, then that means you should take real, um, you should pay real attention to what they are saying because they are a remarkable group of our young. And what they were telling Mr Justice Hayden and Ms Justice Russell very, very clearly is we are not listened to. We are not heard. We are disengaged from the process. You tell us what has happened in our name. You don't tell us why. Your language is something that's not accessible to us. You give us judgments that are in excess of 100 pages using jargon we can't understand. We don't know who's giving evidence. We don't know when the case is necessarily happening. And we do not feel that we are engaged with that process. What can you do to make it better? And one of the things they identified was they wanted to have a chance to meet the judge that was making the decision in their name. And that was why the guidelines were meant to be re-looked at in terms of how and in what circumstances judges meet children and where the difference is between the judge's perception of what the value of the meeting is and the child's. And that's something I'm going to go on to. So you have the direct evidence here from them. They said, very clear about their expectations, those young people don't expect or even want the judge to do as they say, that in itself is an element of maturity. To recognise that because I go in and say I want X, it will happen, and if it doesn't happen, the system is wrong. If only a number of adults could come to that view, we might have a much saner system with which to operate. But what they did want to know was that they'd been heard and they'd been listened to. And that comes down to a mark of basic respect. And there's nothing but praise and honour to be surrounded by that particular request. So what does it mean? If an adult says they hear a child, what do we mean? Does it mean that we're sat down in a room with them, that we have let them say their piece? Does it mean that we've given them the tools to them to say their piece? How do we know what they know? How do we understand what they understand is being discussed between adults? How do we know that they can tell us things that we think we know but we don't know? The, the, the mindset of a child when they come into a meeting with an adult is that adults are the people who ordinarily teach them things. Adults are the people that normally know what is happening. Adults are the people that ordinarily we train our young to obey. So how do we immediately when we're talking to a child, unless we are skilled in it, reframe that imbalance in power to let them feel and know that there are things that adults don't know and it's in their gift the child's gift, they have the power to tell us that which they think is relevant. And in order to do that, we've got to tell the child that that's right. So do we do that within our system? And what does hearing a child mean? Does it mean talking to the judge, as I've said? Does it mean talking to a CAFCAS officer, which, as you'll know from my previous lectures, is the court-appointed representative for the child, who effectively is the go-between between the child, the solicitor, and the court? Or does it mean instructing a solicitor directly? 
Or does it mean coming and talking to the judge directly? So keep those in mind as I develop um, this thought process with you. Perhaps the first thing, if we're talking about hearing the voice of the child means, is that you need to recognise that the public have a concept of the family courts being, as it says here, secret courts, secret justice. So one of the first proposals of the working group from 2015 was to say the courts ought to be literally willing to make their working processes visible, open up their court doors. If, because we want to protect the anonymity of the children from the disputes of the adults and some of the very sad events that are going on in their lives, we properly restrict the public's right to come into the hearings... And if we only allow the press in that are accredited, but nonetheless we still regulate what they can see about the case, surely the minimum we can do as a family justice system is to show the community the judges are meant to serve, the buildings, the environment in which the decisions happen. That surely is a no-brainer. The Supreme Court does it. They have open days at least once a year to which they invite school children, to which they invite the members of the public, and they can see law in action, because in the Supreme Court it is there for everyone to go in. But what about the county courts and the magistrates' courts? The only court that I know does this is in Bristol, under a really forward-thinking judge called Judge Wildblood, who does open up his courtroom to make sure that the members of the public who want to see court in a non-stressful situation, have a chance to come in to see what it means to come into a courtroom where the first thing you have to go through is a security gate. The next thing you have to do is find out where your court is going to be. Those are two significant barriers to feeling in control of your life before we even get to the point of identifying what the difference is between a clerk, what the difference is with an usher, and what you call a judge and how the judge sits in a room and where you as a witness otherwise sit. None of that is like watching Crown Court on telly. It's not like watching Judge Judy. And that's why simply seeing how law is decided can be a way in which you break down the barriers of mistrust or ignorance between the public and the family justice system. It's such an easy thing to do. I'd like to know if more courts have done it. What else do we mean we have to do? It's about whether or not the child should also see the judge about who they've, they, is making their decision. And what I have here, a, again, an extract from the working group where they've talked about here, as, as I say, for too long, young people have struggled to have their voices heard through the family court process. Although they're often at the centre of the proceedings, the views of children and how they feel are often not heard, and other people are making vital decisions for them. I've been really impressed with Family Justice Young People's Board and the arguments its members put forward, which is why I've taken steps to make children and young people from the age of 10 um, be able to express their views in cases that affect them. Now, that was said by the then Minister of Justice and Civil Liberties, um, Hughes, I think, in 2010, um, no, 2015. But that was part of the coalition government's drive to try to make civil liberties, a centre plank of what was going on within the United Kingdom's family justice and criminal justice system. It's there because it chimed with what the working group was also saying through the President's directive. And yet, although there we have a Minister of Justice saying he's made it his mission to make sure that every child over 10, and that's quite a pretty broad statement, 
should have the right to know what's gone in the case. And he goes further in the statement and talks about ways in which after the hearing, every child should be emailed or contacted to be told what the outcome was. Every, every child should have the opportunity of knowing what was going on in his name. And yet, nothing. Now, that might be because since the coalition government fell, we've had a sequence of ministers of justice who effectively go through the revolving door, and we're now on our fourth. How in that environment can you really expect any MP, however diligent they are, however knowledgeable they are, to really get a grasp of the scale of the problem that exists in the justice system, whether it's criminal or whether it's family? They're barely not in the room long enough to pick up the papers before the next one um, moves in. But that's why there is value in having a judiciary who are there effectively until they retire because they have a long-term vision that they are responsible for creating and delivering because they're the ones that are having to deal with the problems week in and week out and will have to face the same problems in a year or two years or five years unless they do something to sort it out. And so that's why there was uh, consideration given to how that could be delivered, how it could be that, for example, a judge should properly meet a child without blurring the boundaries between taking evidence from the child in private, and you can see the problems there. How is that going to mean the, per the parent who is opposed to that child being seen feeling about whether or not the child has effectively swung the balance of justice by having a conversation with the judge in private? We don't want decisions in private. We want decisions that are recorded and transparent. Compared to the child's wish and wishes and feelings being taken into account from the judge, making the child feel valued, but then trying to explain this conundrum about, well, I'm listening to what you're saying, but because I can't take evidence from you, that's actually not going to count in my decision-making process. That, that, I can't make sense of that as an adult, so I don't know how one would make sense of it for a child. But nonetheless, the first stage to doing right by the child is the judge meeting the child. So what could possibly go wrong in that scenario? Well, I'm going to give you two examples where it did go badly wrong. So this is the lead into that, and then I'm going to give you two examples where it was very, very right. What are the guidelines for? The guidelines, even though they were created in 2010 and haven't yet been updated despite the working group's proposals, had a really clear purpose. Um... Purpose being to encourage judges to enable children to feel more involved. Nothing wrong with that. To be connected with proceedings. Nothing wrong with that. To be connected with proceedings in which important decisions are made in their lives and to give them an opportunity to satisfy themselves. The judge has understood their wishes and feelings and understand the natures of the judge's task. Now, just pausing there, I've already alluded to you that misunderstanding, that potential confusion between the child and the judge about what the value is of the child seeing the judge. No issue at all with the judge being able to explain the process or being able to effectively make the child feel as though they are at the centre of deliberations. But how do you get over that conundrum between the child wanting to convey wishes and feelings and the judge knowing that's not evidence he can take into account? So the primary purpose of the meeting is to benefit the child, but it might also benefit the judge and other family members. Does it? This case is one in point where it doesn't. This is by one of our newest judges to the family division, but one who effectively holds us a flag of sense and reason that's going to guide us through the decade or two plus. 
He was dealing with a situation, I think it was 2017, I'll come to the case reference in a moment, whereby he was about to hear a case um, involving a 13-year-old girl, which had been listed for a significant period of time, where the child had been told of her ability to see a judge and where she told her guardian that, as you got here, the date of the 30th of May. The guardian should have immediately told the solicitor, and indeed she did. The solicitor should then have gone into the process of notifying the other parties that the child wanted to see the judge, what the purpose of the meeting was from the child's perspective, what the purpose of the meeting was from the child's legal representative, because there might be a difference between the two, whether or not anyone had any objection, when the meeting would happen, how it would be prepared for, what note would be taken, and effectively how it would sit within the whole of the process. So with that short introduction to the guidelines in mind, I just want to take you through this one to see how things are still going very badly wrong. So like I say, 13-year-old girl, trial set down for hearing. She knows the hearing is taking place. She's asked her guardian she wants to see the judge. The guardian's told the solicitor, what does the solicitor do compared to the guidance? The solicitor does nothing. The guardian sends a reminder on the 27th of June, which is the week before the trial. Hello, remember me? I'm the one who said that child 13 wanted to see the judge. What's going on? Response, there was none. Not until the Friday before the Monday when the trial was starting, at which point the 15-year-old came to court expecting to see the judge. At the same time, the request to the judge was read by the judge because he was there to start the trial in the morning. There'd been no consideration of the purpose of the meeting from the legal representative. There'd been no advance notification to the parties. There'd been no opportunity, as I say, to identify the purpose of the meeting with all of the other caveats we have there. And yet this judge, this high court judge, has got a girl waiting to see him, expecting to see him, waiting outside court. So what does he do? I was persuaded by the children's guardian to see B at the end of the day yesterday in circumstances where she had brought to court with that expectation. Is that good enough? Clearly not, because I was then compelled to renege on that decision when it became apparent that utter confusion still reigned with respect to the manner in which the meeting was to take place. 2017. Can you imagine what that must have been like for that child? to be in that alien environment, in the expectation and building herself up that she was going to see the person that was going to make the decision that would regulate her future, to be kept waiting, to be surrounded there not by security and calmness and planning, but confusion between the adults, to be told she was going to be see, see the judge, then to be told that she wasn't. Is that right? And what does it tell us? It tells us that there is an ongoing obligation on the professionals working with children to make sure that they know what their obligations are to the child, that they know what their professional teachings are, and that they carry them out in practice. It's not difficult for them to do, because we have the guidelines. We have the script. A guardian knows what to do, a solicitor knows what to do. They have rules and guidelines and regulations telling them what to do. So it's not as though they have to reinvent the wheel. They simply have to make sure they've loaded the wagon, they've got on, and they're riding it. What else happens? Is it simply in this situation where a professional working with a child gets it wrong, to which the answer is no? Okay, so I'm about to 
talk to you about is from 2014, re-KP and abduction case, which concerned a 13-year-old child who was going to be seen by a High Court judge, Mrs Justice Parker, and was in fact seen for over an hour. Now, the difference in this case is that the child did know she was going to go and see the judge. That much was clear. What she didn't know was that she was going to see the judge that day after school in totally unplanned situation where the reason it evolved is because the judge had heard evidence from the CAFCAS officer and decided she wanted to hear from the child herself. What the child didn't know is she'd then be taken into the judge's room and albeit with a clerk there taking a note, she'd then be in the judge's chambers for an hour and was asked over 87 questions. So let me just come back to that bit I said at the beginning. What's the function of a judge in this situation? Is it to take evidence? Is it to listen to wishes and feelings? Is it to make the child feel valued? Is it to make the child feel reassured about the process that they're there? Is it to enable the child to understand they have a valuable role? Is it not, in this case, having done that for over an hour, then to decide that her assessment of the child was she was confused about why she was reluctant to return to her country of origin, and therefore, rather than listening to the child, and rather than listening to the guardian who supported the child, she made a decision contrary to the wishes of them both. How does that help? So it should be no surprise to you that the reason we know about this case is it was appealed, and the actions of that judge were uh, brought to account, and the decision was overturned. But, really... Should that really be happening? The answer is clearly no. But it can be done, and I'm going to give you two examples of where that happens. The first is by Sir Mark Potter, and it shows that we're not reinventing the wheel because he was doing this back in 2009, whereby he uh, wanted to know of a 13-year-old effectively how this child understood the system to operate. The child was reluctant to return to his country of origin. He had quite strong views about what was going to go on in his country of origin. And the judge wanted to meet him. One, because he wanted to get a sense of the child about whom he was going to make a decision. Two, because he wanted to explain to the child what was going on within the court hearing. Not descending into the detail, but just explaining the process. Thirdly, to try to puncture some of those worries about a country about whom the judge knew that the child's reservations about the process and operation of the law were not right. So it properly engaged with the papers that the judge was reading about the child, properly understood that the child appeared to have the age and maturity to deal with that type of exchange, identified the parameters of what was going on, and then delivered. Got to be the right way to do things. Now, does anyone remember this case? This was the case last year of the child who was sadly dying, the girl who wanted to be cyogenically frozen. And there was a dispute between the parents about whether that should happen. The mother was supporting the child's wish. The child was terminally ill, and she did not want to be buried underground and to be eaten by worms. That was her terminology. She was not fearful of death so much as what would happen to her afterwards, and she wanted to be therefore cryogenically frozen so that somehow, somewhere, there might be a way in which she could go to her death thinking that death may not be finite. It was a groundbreaking case, not simply because that was the first time the issue had come before the courts, but also because the way in which the judge dealt with it. This was then um, Mr Justice Peter Jackson, who's now gone to the Court of Appeal, and he went to go and see the child in hospital. And this is here because it's relevant, because this shows how much you can achieve if you do things right. 
This is the judge stepping outside of his comfort zone. He goes to a hospital. He sees the child. The consequences of which is that he is impressed by her dignity, by her strength of vision, and by the absolute vision with which she sees her future and its stages. Secondly, she is able to describe this judge as my hero. That's the way to do things. So, what do I do? I see children when I'm sitting as a judge. And I see children because in trying to look for a reason as to why I did it, I was looking for an easy example, and it's, it's effectively this, that children can give you far more information than you believe possible. Because when I'm sitting as a barrister or I'm sitting as a judge, I have reams and reams of paper. I have thousands of pages, oftentimes, in black and white, telling me what the child's life is like. I might see photographs of the child, but not in the best of situations. I might read a letter from the child, not in the best of situations. I might see the child being videoed, interviewed in a police suite. But effectively, what I'm seeing is the child through the filter of others. And the one gift, seeing a child in my rooms with people being there to take a note, is it adds colour, it adds personality. It gives me so much more of an understanding about what the child is about that I cannot believe there's any good reason for it not happening if the child wants it to happen and if it's properly prepared. There's a scheme that's been running in Leeds for the last year where rather than waiting for a child to ask, they've been routinely asking children whether or not they would wish to come and meet the judge. It's primarily directed at seven years plus. In the main, children aged 10 years take it up. It's carefully managed. Stage manager is the wrong word to use, but it's an effective tool for making sure that if a child wants to see the decision maker, they can do, and the system is geared up for that to be happen. It's a pilot scheme that should be run and run out more frequently, in my view. What's the next area in which we um, listen to a child? And that's the most controversial because it's the most difficult to grapple, and that's where the child becomes a witness in their own right, either because they can give an account of something they have seen or heard or been told, or where they're giving evidence about something that has happened to themselves, and they are the originator of the allegation against uh, whichever um, adult is that accused of abuse. Remember what I said before about the family justice system lagging behind? Well, listen, look at the figures here. As of 2012... Um, 2008-9 to 2012, over 33,000 children were going through the criminal justice system to give evidence. We don't know the numbers that that happens to in the family justice system, but we do know it's a very, very small percentage of that. And we also know that the assumption was that a child would not give evidence until a decision effectively um, in 2010, which I'll come on to. In order to put that into context... We need to recognise that we need to learn from the criminal justice system. And there is effectively no age limit now in the criminal justice system below which a child wouldn't give evidence. It's a question of how fair the system is, whether the arrangements can be made for the child to give evidence in the best circumstances, and whether a fair trial, as well as to the defendant, and also a fair um, supportive framework to the child can be brought into account. When I say no child too young, just look at this. Baker, in 2010, this was a case in which the criminal court heard evidence from a child aged four about a very serious allegation where they'd been videoed, interviewed at three, and they were recalling something that happened at two, and it led to a conviction. 
and the conviction was upheld on appeal because the quality of the evidence that the child gave was so compelling, despite being asked questions by the person that needed a challenger, that the conviction was deemed to be safe. Because it's not the age of the witness that's important, but their ability to give evidence that's vital. And what we have to recognise is that our criminal justice system, just as our family justice system, hasn't been developed for understandable reasons with children in mind. We operate from a paper system, an adult memory. We rely heavily on spoken testimony. But there are other ways around the system in which we can learn to get the best quality evidence from all those who can assist either the jury or the judge to come to the decision that's necessary to protect those who are most vulnerable in our society. So what type of barriers are there to children giving evidence? Well, the first is that we need to take account of their stage of development, the degree to which their language is verbal or nonverbal. We need to understand that they may not respond to questions in the way that we expect. One, because we laid in our language with too many complexities and too many meanings. Two, because we don't adjust our adult speech to that which a child can understand and properly follow. Three, because we still convey the image to a child that we are in charge, whereas in fact the way to get the best evidence from a child is to make them feel in control and able to tell their narrative in the best way. And that we need to make sure that we understand that children give evidence not simply verbally, but also in non-verbal mannerisms, so how they say things and what they're also doing at the same time. Unspoken communication may go unnoticed in a world in which things are reduced to transcripts. And there is an amazing amount of work that's being done on this, and one which we should properly take heed to. Um, why is this significance? And as I've said, it's because the child may actually be the only witness who can give the court the information needed to come to the best decision at the end of the day. It's important because young children are those who are the most vulnerable to maltreatment. It's because one to four-year-olds are likely to be subject to child protection plans and far greater proportion than any other age group. It's because children under the age of one consistently have the highest rate of homicide as victims. It's because 30% of serious case reviews involve a baby under one. And it's because if we don't listen to children, the consequences for that child and the consequences for the family and the consequences in terms of cost to repair the damage otherwise is simply unsustainable. So things have to change. So this is my image to try to show you that that's the way in which the family justice system was going, and yet there was a way in which one could look at it afresh. And overladen with that is the case of RW in 2010 that effectively recalibrated the way in which the family justice system was going to approach cases in the future. It removed the presumption that was rarely, if ever, rebutted that a child um, only in exceptional cases should give evidence in the family case. It said no presumption. What you do is start from a level playing field and then you balance the advantages and disadvantages of both the value of the evidence, the significance of it, and where that evidence stood in terms of the complexity of the trial and the right to, the right to a fair trial responsibilities. Now here, as in the lecture, sets down a number of the different components which you have to look at, and I don't have time to go through them in detail, and I give you the alert, as always, that that which I've put in the compendious notes which the Gresham team print out religiously and patiently for all of their 25 pages or thereabouts are far more detailed than I can cover in this lecture. But just to give you an idea, how important is the child's evidence? 
Is it the critical factor which the court needs to weigh up to decide whether or not the allegations contained within it are true or not? Is there an alternative means of evaluating that evidence? For example, the achieving best interview evidence that I referred to in my last lecture, is that good enough? Did the child speak to other people, and so therefore the other people can give an account? How old is the child? How emotionally mature is the child? Is there a support network around the child that can assist them? Does the child want to give evidence? All of those factors have to be taken into account with no weighting either side, but looking at all matters. And then, and only then, you make a decision about whether the child should give evidence, and if so, what special measures should be put in place in order for that to happen. What this case recognised as the family um, justice group that reported in 2015 recognised, is that for that decision to have any impact required a sea change in attitude from social workers, from lawyers, from guardians, from solicitors and from judges. Because there's no point having the case law there if, in fact, everyone chooses to continue on their safe routine and simply thinking that the, the courtroom is not a place for the child to be. So stop doing what you're doing. Has it made a difference? Well, the toolkits are there. Again, I've told you about these in advance, about picking up learning from other jurisdictions, and there are now toolkits specifically designed to cope um, and assist uh, with a child giving evidence in the family justice system. Um, we have services such as intermediaries who can assist, who are there effectively to guide the child through the process of giving evidence by helping in advance the parties to understand the limitations under which the child operated, the best communication tools, how they can be guided to make um, the court system less unfamiliar to them, whether they should give evidence away from the courtroom in a screened area, whether it should be by video link, a whole range of facilities which are determined and uh, assisted through the services of, in this instance, Triangle, which is an organisation which is of phenomenal skill that specialises in dealing with children of early years. And calling upon that experience to say, can this be made to work? Identify issues that are problems and how we can overcome them. So in that context, the best outcome is achieved. So we have the support, we have the specialist services, and now because the Ministry of Justice have agreed that intermediaries can now be funded by the court, there should be no barrier to them being obtained. But is it happening? And in reality, although I'm less frowned upon in court if I suggest a child should give evidence, there seems to be an overwhelming number of reasons why that shouldn't happen. And our practice in the family justice system still lags very significantly behind that which is adopted as the norm in a criminal process. And I think that behoves upon us to ask the question, why? Is it because in each of those cases it was right for the child not to give evidence? Or is it because that balance sheet has still been weighted because we still have a very paternalistic approach to matters of this nature? So the last topic, and it's probably the most taxing one, because it's where I'm asking a big question, which is whether overall we are actually properly reflecting the child's right to have a direct say in the workings of the case in which they are a subject or an object. And the degree to which, in particular, the rights that they're given by international conventions are properly respected within our jurisdiction. So there's two articles um, that are of particular significance. Article 12 of the United Nations Conventions of the Right of the Child, which talks about giving the child not simply the opportunity of expressing their views, 
but also in particular, as it says here, the second part, the opportunity to be heard in any judicial or administrative proceedings affecting the child, either directly or through a representative in an appropriate manner. Now, I'm pausing here because what I want you to reflect upon is that there's no waiting between those two parts of that second paragraph. They are not saying the child's voice should be heard in the primary sense through a representative. They're not saying that's the default position. And only if the child is mature enough or actively wants or if there's a conflict should that mean the child has a direct voice through instructing their own solicitor. This is evenly balanced. And so my question really is whether or not within um, our family justice system in the United Kingdom, where we've automatically assumed that the child should be acted and their wishes and feelings should be conveyed through a guardian who then instructs a solicitor what, the child's, uh, what their instructions are, rather than that being the position that's um, considered, but not automatically the first approach from the court. And why do I say that? And it's because it's not simply Article 12 of the UN Convention, but Article 24 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union also says that this is something that needs to be considered because you shouldn't assume there's a limitation to the way in which a child's um, voice should be conveyed, heard, listened to, and given um, weight to within our court system. Again, I'm not breaking any new ground here because we know the courts have had to grapple with these international conventions, and we know that because of the decision by Mr Justice Ryder. And he did say that the United Kingdom court should have a child-centred approach, that what these rights, Article 12 in particular, demonstrated was you shouldn't treat a child's right to fair trial a right to have a voice any different to that of an adult. There's no delimination between the two of them. How you deal with it may be a different matter, but the starting point should be they have a right to be centre stage in terms of the decisions that are being taken. In private law cases, children are not automatically joined as parties. What happens ordinarily in a private law dispute is you'll have, let's say the classic case, you'll have parents no longer living together, the child is at the centre of a dispute, the court goes to trial because there's not agreement on where the child should live or who they should see. And in that instance, the child's wishes and feelings are taken through the appointment by the court of, for example, uh, what used to be a welfare officer, now a CAFCAS guardian, or could be an independent social worker, who then conducts their investigations in the community and reports back to the court about what the child's wishes and feelings are, if they're old enough to give them, and what recommendation they make in the context of the alternatives for the child as a whole. But the welfare officer or the CAFCAS guardian or the independent social worker is not the advocate for the child. They are simply an evidence gatherer. They form opinions. So where in that scenario of private law, where you have two very loud competing voices, is the child's voice properly represented if, in fact, they don't even have a solicitor or an advocate acting for them? Now, that's not to say in private law cases that solicitors aren't appointed on behalf of children and children don't get their own voice, but it is the exception rather than the rule. It happened in this case. Madonna and Guy Ritchie, a private law case of very wealthy individuals with a very articulate 15-year-old boy. But I just simply put that up to throw the questioners. Was that something that was achieved because of the articulate nature of the parents, the articulate nature of the child, the fact that they claimed the space they wanted and the child in particular wanted to have a distinct voice? 
Is that really the example of what's going on in our courts, in the magistrates' courts, in the counter courts across the world, across the country? I think probably not. In public law proceedings, a child is automatically joined as a party, regardless of their age. And that's quite rightly so. If you remember back to the previous lectures, what I've tried to explain is in private law, it's called private law because essentially it's a private dispute. It's between members of the family or those associated with the family. But it's still private law because the state is not involved. Once you move into the public law field, that's where the state, the local authorities and organ of the state, is actively seeking to interfere in the family's life because they say a child protection issue has arisen. So at that point where you have the state involving itself in what would otherwise be a right to private family life, which could have very serious consequences for the child, which could include adoption, which would, if granted, fundamentally terminate the legal relationship as well as the visual and physical relationship with the maternal or paternal family, then that means that the child should be entitled to have their own representation. The way it happens is a guardian will be appointed by the court and a solicitor will be appointed by the court and the guardian's responsibilities are clearly delineated in terms of the level of their inquiries, which are all-encompassing. They become the eyes and ears of the court. The extent and quality of their work depends on the quality and the assiduousness of the officer involved, but their realm of responsibility is enormous. They will take the wishes and feelings of the child, depending on whether the child is capable of giving them. They will balance them up in terms of whether that's in the child's best interests and welfare, and you have in mind, won't you, the difference between what a child wants and whether what they want is actually going to be safe for them. That's where you get the dis distinction between the two. They will give instructions to the solicitor and the solicitor will act on those instructions unless there comes a point where it's clear to the guardian and the solicitor that there is going to be a potential conflict between what the child wants to happen and what the CAFCAS officer is recommending. At that point, it will be kept under review then there may need to be an application to the court where there's a separation of the guardian from the child. The solicitor will then take instructions from the child direct and the guardian um, still remains involved but um, doesn't fall under that umbrella. But can you see how that passage of process operates? Where the very first assumption of our, of our justice system is that unless there is a conflict, then the child's voice will be heard through the guardian. Now, I'm simply not sure that even if that's the end result in, in a number of cases, that's the right way in which we should approach things. And so I think it's time for us to understand and to reflect on whether or not, rather than simply assuming that that should be the case, whether active consideration is given, whether or not that is the right mode for, mode for operation. So this takes you through what the solicitor's duties are. It takes you through, as I've said, the Article 12 UN Convention, Listen to Me, and I'm posing the open question to which I'm not pretending to have the answers, which is, are we doing it right? Are we listening hard enough? And are we actually giving the child's voice the type of legitimacy it deserves by being heard directly through the court through as fewer filters as possible, rather than it being seen through the eyes and ears of those who speak on the child's behalf? When I think about the cases that I deal with. It is relatively rare that I see a child separately represented. It's relatively rare even when they are 15, 14, and quite often the reason they're not separately represented, even though it's obvious that what they're asking the court to do 
through their wishes and feelings is contrary to what the Guardian has recommended is because they are ordinarily in that state of crisis because they have gone through some serious abuse as part of their formative years. And as I've tried to explain before in previous lectures, do not assume that just because a child has been maltreated, they cease to love their abuser. Do not assume that because a child, from all external perspectives, has had a childhood which you would not wish any animal to go through, that that means that they don't still wish to be with, to be loved by, to see, and to be held within their family. That's not what happens. But when they give their wishes and feelings about what they are, even though from the outside perspective we might see that that's wholly against their interests, if that's what they're truly wanting to happen, should they not have the right to articulate that? And again, I'm not the first person to say this. When you get to look at the text, you'll see that um, Matthew Thorpe, one of our most senior judges, said that simply because you don't agree with what the child wants doesn't mean to say they don't have the right to say it. If we adopted that procedure so far as adults were concerned, then we wouldn't have a fair trial and we wouldn't have the voices in court which lead to there being cross-examination. So why do we assume that the child doesn't have that right to be heard? Why do we make that value judgment? Is it part of that paternalistic culture we have where we assume that having a voice heard through someone else is good enough because we can always hear what the child has to say? And what happens if that child is old enough to know that when the court decides against them, that they've not had that opportunity of being heard through their own counsel in court. At the moment, children do not come within the court building to hear and listen to the evidence. In fact, the rules fundamentally guide us against doing that. And that may be for good reason. We don't want children to be at the centre of disputes where they may have hugely um, damaging information about what's gone on in their own lives and their parents' lives. But we don't welcome children into proceedings at any part of their evidence. And like I say, coming around full circle, it comes back to the degree to which judges are prepared to meet children. It comes back to the degree to which we um, apply guidelines in which the children's wishes and feelings can be heard and whether they're updated. It applies in terms of whether we give the child the opportunity of giving evidence in terms of the allegations they're making. And it comes into play in terms of whether we welcome into them into the courtroom to understand the significance of the decisions that are being made. And it comes into play in terms of the way we give them their representation. So are we doing enough? None of us need to be defensive about the work we do because the one linking theme between all of us, whether we are barristers, solicitors, guardians, social workers, judges support workers, is the reason you do child protection work is you want to make a difference and you want to enable the judge to come to the best decision possible. Not necessarily the right decision, but the best decision on the available evidence. And if that's really what we want to do as part of our vocation, as part of our training, then I think we should be prepared to challenge ourselves about whether or not we're doing it in the right way for the majority of the cases or for the individual cases, and we should be prepared to think the unthinkable. Because otherwise the danger is we assume a level of performance, we assume a level of acceptability in terms of listening to a child which actually hasn't kept a pace of developments um, either in terms of the child's understanding of the world or what uh, needs to happen in the courtroom. 
So these cases were the ones I was referring to, which gave you the quotes uh, in far better words than I, which was explaining that we shouldn't be paternalistic, that we should not say no to individual representation simply because we assume either the child may come to a decision which is not in the best interest or they may end up simply becoming the mouthpiece for the parent with whom they're sided. Is that good enough a reason? No, it's not. So, nearly there. Voices in the middle. I tend to agree with this, which is the tendency of the English common law is to make the child a passive object of concern or welfare rather than positively being subject to rights to which he or she is entitled at UN EU law. And that's something I think we need to grapple with sooner or later. We need to do so because if we don't keep abreast of what's happening with the children in uh, of, uh, the level of maturity that we have, if we recognise that in the world of Twitter and social media, in the world with which they can get news at the click of their button and we've got no control as an adult over what they see and what they talk about, if we assume that our paternalistic desire to protect their welfare can be rapidly overtaken by a conversation in the school or on the street by others who know what's going on far better than we do, do we not have to recognise that the better reality is to recognise that we are no longer in the world where as adults... 10, 15 years ago, we could control that to which the children had access to. And we now properly understand and embrace the concept of partnership with children, making sure that we can do what we can do to make sure that they feel they are valued and listened to. Because ultimately, the image I have in mind in uh, presenting this lecture is that when I read pages and pages of material... When I see my colleagues pouring through files that may go back decades over a child or a family's life, when I see my colleagues participating in advocates' meetings or I see them outside in courtrooms, the one thing I'm clear about is that what we do as adults is we walk through the courtroom door and then we shut it. And the person that we leave behind, very physically, sometimes for good reason but sometimes not, is the child about whom we are making decisions and where we have the responsibility to explain to them at the end of the day why we've come to the decision that we have. That, I think, is both a responsibility and is a burden, and it's something we need to grapple with. So that's why I wanted to speak to you about the subject today, not because I have any answers, not because I think there's any easy solutions, not because we are doing bad things, because I think we're doing excellent things with the best of motivations within the family justice system, but I think it's time to ask questions about whether we are properly listening. And if we're being told things, whether we're properly hearing them, and if we're hearing them, whether we're properly saying them. Because sometimes I don't think we give our young people and our children the respect that they deserve, given that they are the ones that have to live with our representations and our decisions once we move on to our next case and move on to our own lives. So thank you very much indeed for listening. I'm going to call this up if I can, just to say to you two things. Firstly, like I say, the materials outside are far more dense than that which I convey within this time. I am hugely indebted to two particular contributors. The first is to David Burrows, whose work I borrowed on heavily in terms of looking at the international work by um, Article 12 and Article 24, and also to recommend to you the work of Triangle, but in particular someone by the name of Ruth Marchant, 
whose lectures and whose notes gave me a huge amount of assistance in understanding how we can assist children to give evidence within both the family and the criminal justice systems. I've given all the links there. I can only pretend to be an expert within my field and I don't trespass upon those. So if you have time, I really would urge you to look at their work and to take this matter up into your own. So thank you very much indeed.